Sometimes it's good to be reminded of the one that we come and worship every week. And on a week where our hope is to focus a little more on prayer, it's good to be reminded that we serve an all-powerful, almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God in heaven who we deserve to not even be in his presence and who loves us enough that he sent his son to die on the cross to allow us to have a righteousness that allows us to be in his presence, to come to him with everything. Something, too, that I think is good to remember is that he does not need you to come and worship him. He doesn't need you to pray to him every week. He doesn't need you to give. He doesn't need you to praise him. He is all-sufficient. And sometimes that can seem cold and harsh. But I think when you think about it a little more, it shows you that you have a God that who, even though we have nothing that we can give him in return, loves us enough that he created us in his image to reflect his goodness, loves us enough to extend a relationship with him. And he gives us his son, he gives us his word to show us how to worship him. And our goal today, our hope each and every week is to be able to worship him well. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife and I decided to buy a small above-ground pool for our kiddos. We always had like a blow-up pool that we would empty every time. There it is right there. So we, we uh, pitched in about $150 to buy ourselves one of those in-text pools that you can kind of put together. And I worked really, really hard to make sure the ground was level and to uh, make sure that all the legs had supports. And uh, it was, you know, small enough that the kids could feel confident. You know, even our, our youngest could walk around in it. It just kind of comes up to her waist. Uh, but big enough that it needed its own pump to, to pump the water so you don't have to drain it every single time. And so worked really, really hard on this, and it finally came time to fill it up and let the kids play in it, which I love because that meant I got to be like the hero of summer because this was like Christmas in June, and uh, they loved it. And man, day one, we, we jumped in there, and I mean, they swam from noon until bedtime, and they were in there all day long. And Loved it. And the second day, same thing. Like, never got tired of it. Day three, they jump in, and, uh, you know, my wife was out there, and she, she looked at the water, and she said, you know, I kind of think it might not be as clear as it was that very first day. And I was like, ah, sure. I mean, it's getting some use. It's fine. It's not a big deal. We'll throw in a few chlorine tablets, make sure that everything is good. And so then the next day, they play again. Same thing. She was like, I, I, I can't decide if it's getting better. I said, oh, it's fine. You know, what do you know? It's fine. And uh, so then the next day, you know, we covered up. They went, the next day, they went out of town to go see Kelsey's mom and dad spend time with grandparents. And so uh, then, so we had a full 48 hours, rolls around. The next day, they want to jump in and, and swim. So we pull the cover off, and I can't even see the bottom of the pool. It was disgusting. I know this is like not a great description, but I mean, it looked like you had like a hundred people that just went and like blew their nose in the pool and just like stirred it around. And it was, it was gross. There were all these things floating around. And I thought to myself, like, this was covered. How did all of this get in the pool? And so we quickly learned a lesson that we had ignored some warning signs and were paying the price. A bigger problem had been created then simply throwing in some chlorine tablets now could fix. Now, I share that story to help frame up for you what I hope to convey today. Honestly, I, 
I've really wrestled with how to approach this morning. Today is a special week, not only because we, we have a holiday coming up in a couple days, Independence Day, a, a chance to uh, just commemorate the, the birth of our country. It's also a special weekend for us here at LeClaire because this is one of our Sundays that we wanted to uh, set aside to devote to focus on prayer. And if you remember at the beginning of the year, we, we talked about we wanted to be a church that that uh, is more intentional about praying together as a church and, and praying for uh, just God to use these, you guys and us, or this congregation to uh, help reflect him in this world and help point people to truth. And if you remember at the beginning of January, we, we passed out some cards with some things for you to, to pray about and encourage you to just put that somewhere where you'd see it periodically, maybe in your Bible and, and you know, time that you pray and spend with the Lord that you can look at those from time to time and be praying through them. And back in March, Andy preached a sermon on prayer, talked about that there are some things in our lives that can hinder our prayer, sometimes our relationships. If, if we live and we're not reconciled with our, our brother or sister, like we need to make that, fix that. And uh, other things that can hinder our prayer life, uh, you know, just some uh, motivations that we may have for whatever we pray for and different priorities in our life. And at that time, we'd also asked you to pray for something specific here at LeClaire. We were in the the beginnings of looking for a new worship minister and asked you to pray for that. And here we are now on this uh, Sunday to focus again. And, and we have a new worship minister that probably about now is going to be hopping in this car and making his way from Florida here. So it's neat to look back and see how at times God answers some of those prayers. And that's exciting to see that he's doing that even here at LeClaire. But, but here we are again. And I'll be honest, I've, I've really thought a lot about this morning and how to approach it. Initially, seeing that this was 4th of July weekend and we're having a prayer weekend, I thought, what a better time to talk about and to spend time praying for our nation. Because right now, waking up in America, in our surrounding society and culture, sometimes feels like pulling the cover off of that pool and looking in and seeing, how did we get here? For those of you who've been around for more than five minutes, you know that it seems like overnight what was once a clear understanding of right and wrong has been turned on its head in so many areas, and we're swimming around in a cesspool of moral confusion, pride and celebration of sexual immorality, increasing injustice and predation on the vulnerable and innocent, leaders who euphemize so many detestable things, increasing love of money and greed. In fact, not long ago, I, I read a, a statistic in the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal. They had done some research. They were looking at five values that people typically hold and just seeing how those, uh, those priorities of those values had changed over the last decade and a half, 25 years. So 1998, they asked people, how would you rank your value of these five different things? And they were uh, uh, patriotism, religion, family, community involvement, and money. And so comparing 1998 to 2023, there was a big shift. From 98 to now, uh, the value of, of patriotism, for example, uh, people, it was 70% in the, the late 90s, dropped to 38%. Religion, 62%. Today, 39%. Family, 59%. To today, 30%. Community involvement, 62% to today, 27%. 
there was only one value that actually increased. Can you guess what it was? Yeah, 31% to 43%. Now, just considering those changes in the last couple decades tells you that something has shifted dramatically in the minds and hearts of, of our country. And I just don't know if we know the half of it. And my fear is that we, the church, can sometimes easily get desensitized to maybe how quickly things have changed and sometimes maybe get swept up in the current itself to swim around in a pool and no longer realize the weight of the convictions that we hold and the world around us. Sometimes our society is looking a lot more like some of the descriptions that you might read about in the Old Testament when it talks about the nation of Israel whenever they're coming to the end of their time. And you have prophets like Isaiah that are, are preaching a message that says, listen, when you look around, you can see that, that people are calling good evil and evil good, and they're putting darkness for light and light for darkness. And it was at this point that God was sending messengers to, to help people make a decision because they were kind of at a point where they had two choices to make, either recognize the path that they were on or continue down it and face destruction. Now, I don't, I'm not a prophet. I don't know what's around the corner for our nation, for our, our, our world necessarily, but, but I know who's on the throne. But I know in our circumstances, I know that we need to be people that have wisdom and discernment to know how to respond. Because I still think sometimes it's easy to look at the things that are floating around on the surface and miss the deeper ideas and deceptions that have created a culture that when truth is staring people right in the face, things are so murky and so dark that they can't even see it. And so often I find myself wanting to throw my hands in the air and echo the words of Jesus as he is going down into Jerusalem on the last week before the cross. If you remember, he looks down in the city and, and he thinks about the people, and, and this is what he, he says. He says, if you only knew what would bring you peace, if you only knew but it's hidden from you. So I know that we're not alone in this, but honestly, it just can feel hopeless. So it only seemed appropriate then on a week like this to take some time to, at the very least, think through this. And at the end of today, if, if this only makes your brain kind of turn just a little more and think a little bit more about what is our role and responsibility in the world that we live in? That's, that's good. And So take some time to think through this and then also to pray. To pray. Now some of you might even be questioning, like what is the validity of even praying for your, your own nation? And, and, and I've thought about that a little bit as I've been thinking about this Sunday. And I, I do think we see some precedence for this kind of prayer when we look in Scripture. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and, and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to take a look at, at the beginning of that chapter real quick. We see here that, that Paul is, is, is writing this letter to Timothy in order to help him lead and conduct the, the church that he's a part of there in Ephesus. And he says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he specifies, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pray for all people, specifically pray for kings and all those authorities, so that we, the church, can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Why? 
Because he wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Now we see a picture here where a church is is called upon to pray for those in charge, government leaders. Now, I want to clarify some things about this prayer. Now, this was not a prayer of, you know, a pray for uh, one nation or one empire to be better or or, uh, greater than another. That that wasn't what this prayer was. In fact, this wasn't even a a prayer about, uh, you know, the empire there or any nation, uh, you know, having success economically or politically. It wasn't even a prayer about the the moral restitution of the people. Now, I don't necessarily think that those things are are bad things to pray for, I think, as long as they are in their proper context. And we see a little bit of that context here. I mean, but we do get a lot of uh, helpful information when we look through the Old Testament. We see God's people in a time where they are in exile in this foreign land, and they are called upon to uh, seek the good of the, the country that they are in and the places that they are in. I think some of that is still applicable to us today. But even those kinds of prayers need to be subservient to an even greater cause. And we see that here. See, the purpose for this church to pray for the state and those in charge was so that Christians could live peaceful and quiet lives within the state that they were living. Now, this was not a prayer of let me have a, a life where I can mind my own business and then the government, you just kind of stay out of it. This was not a prayer of like separation of church and state. No, Christians were on a mission from Jesus to go and share the good news. This was a prayer of we have a job to do and it would be much easier to do that job without any government interference standing in the way, to do this job without having to muster the full force of courage needed for congregations to teach what the Lord has commanded. That was his instructions to them in boldness and in courage without having their lives and livelihoods at stake. That's what they were praying for. To them, to remain passive was not an option. To remain passive violated the very commands of Jesus to go into all the world. They were going to do that regardless. Their prayers were, one, to be able to accomplish their task with as much peace as possible. You see, Paul was identifying one of the greatest obstacles to people hearing the gospel. That was the purpose of this prayer. Because Paul knew, just like these early Christians knew, that they had these ideas that they were espousing, this truth that they came in possession of, that wasn't always going to mesh with the culture around them. I mean, does that sound familiar And there were a lot of obstacles that they were going to face, more than probably what Paul could account for here in this passage. I mean, their faith was countercultural in so many ways. They had views of humanity, of sin and marriage and family and the value and sanctity of life, what constitutes human purpose and identity, so many different ways that looked different than the world around them. And this was not just one of many ways to think about life. No, this was the way. And it was the answer of, to what all of creation is and how creation works and how creation was intended to work and how it can work in such a way to lead people to eternal salvation in the future, but also to abundant life in the present. But as is the case, different ideas can often cause a lot of upheaval. And so this is why they pray. Pray for the gospel to be easily moved. 
for leaders like Osiris, not a Nebuchadnezzar, leaders that are at the very least open to truth and not completely obstinate and opposed to it. So if that was their obstacle for them, what does that mean for us? If we are a church going to get back to this call to pray, and if our motivation deep down is for clearing away the things that get in the way of people knowing and hearing the gospel, I think an important question for us to ask is what are those, what are those obstacles to the gospel that we face in this place in this time? More specifically, what is it that is in this pool that is keeping people from being able to see this truth? Now, I'll be honest, this is a thought that consumes my mind frequently. I always love to dive in and figure out, like, how did we end up where we are today, where there are things that are just intuitive that are so against how the rest of human history has acted and responded. I love to think about these things. I could probably do a whole sermon of just, like, thinking of these different ways, which I think sometimes is helpful, but I don't know if there's any just one thing to contribute to to identify, but I do think it's important for us to seek to understand where we are and what's going on. To respond to our times, we have to understand our times. So here are a few thoughts that come to mind. I think for one, we live in a world of moral relativism, where the one thing our culture does agree on is to reject any notion that there is any one truth to agree on. This is the pool that we are living in. One of the obstacles that we face, the, the way that our society and culture thinks, this is the way that kids who are brought up generations after us intuitively believe. So any assertion that there is only one way, the very claim of Jesus in John 14, 6, that he's the way, the truth, and the life is immediately met with some form of skepticism and maybe outright rejection. We live in a culture that has increasingly embraced deceptive ideologies that see the world through simplistic lens of power dynamics. Ideologies that keep people enslaved to their socially constructed identities and impervious to true genuine reconciliation with one another, and more importantly, reconciliation with God. Ideologies that classify all people in this world as either oppressed or an oppressor, and thus concludes that the only option for deliverance is tearing down the institutions perceived to be the sole culprits of these systems of oppression. Again, leading people to be cynical toward things like the Bible and the church and faith in Christ. And don't get me wrong, there are mistakes that the church has made that have led us to where we are, that have created some semblance of distrust, but if you combine that with this kind of worldview that conflates the actions of some for the actions of all, it makes things so much more challenging. We live in a world of the belief that our true identity, that our true self, is defined with what is within us and not defined by a God outside of us who has created us. Even when Scripture clearly teaches that our inner desires are just as corrupted as the actions and the sins that those desires often lead us to commit. And these are just some of the predominant philosophies that I believe we're called to understand and to recognize so that we would be able to articulate a better truth, that we could be able to articulate how Jesus brings something different, something that is whole and healing. And at the root of all these worldview ideologies is often a rejection of what is true. 
And it's this thinking that continues to get pumped into our culture, that continues to make the waters murkier and murkier. And as people embrace these ideas, oftentimes unknowingly, it places blinders on them from knowing and hearing what they need most. And this can feel like an insurmountable obstacle. How do you speak truth to a culture that is conditioned to reject it? How do you show love to a culture that doesn't understand it? I know that many of you face this tension regularly in your life because we've had conversations about it. You have friends and family members or coworkers that you want so desperately to know the truth, to know how deeply you care for them and how God cares for them, but it just seems like any efforts made is just met with resistance and, and more blindness. What do you do in those circumstances? A quote that has stuck with me lately comes from C.S. Lewis, and he identifies the problem, and uh, I almost think in a prophetic way. I mean, he was a theologian in the mid-20th century, and, and he talks about our role to spread the gospel. Listen to what he says. He says, For my part, I believe we ought to work not only at spreading the gospel, that certainly, but also at certain preparation for the gospel. It is necessary to recall many to the law of nature before we talk about God. And what he means there by law of nature is just the the natural morality we can see just by being human that is built into our world. Even without the specific revelation of God through Christ and his word, there is a, a morality we can gain just by looking at this natural world. He goes on, For Christ promises forgiveness of sins, but what is that to those who, since they do not know the law of nature, do not know that they have sinned? I think Lewis was ahead of his time in pointing out one of the unique challenges that Christians would face and would face even more in the years to come of living in a morally relativistic society. When people not only abandon God's word, but when they abandon the very morality that you can plainly see in the world around you. How do you preach Christ when there is no recognition or need for Christ? Can I be real with you today? I think C.S. Lewis is on to something. Sometimes I wonder if our, and, and I mean our, inability to be bold and courageous with truth, our inability to see how this so paves a way for the gospel in people's lives, sometimes I wonder if our inability to be bold in those ways has created an even larger mess for us to face. Has left our families, our schools, our businesses, our country, this world, facing a tremendous obstacle to a much-needed gospel of grace. An obstacle of moral confusion. That perhaps we bought into this general feeling that my faith is my own and I just practice it personally on my own. It has no bearing on the people around me, yet there are men and women walking around who are destined to live an eternity apart from God. Did we lose this urgency? (coughs) Sometimes I wonder if our attempts to love our neighbor, that we've often misunderstood what this love entails, 
Do you know that when Jesus quotes this passage in, in Matthew 22, there's, there's a teacher of the law that comes to him and, and, and is trying to trick him. And he says, Jesus, can you tell me what the greatest commandment is? Out of all the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament, and Jesus says, well, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's you know, quoting from a verse in Deuteronomy. And then he says, the, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so many churches, ours included, take those two verses and say, this is our mission. This is what we need to be about. Love God, love others, and prove it daily. But do you know the context of that second verse, love your neighbor as yourself? It comes out of the book of Leviticus in chapter 19, and there's several verses that talk about how you can love your neighbor, and it concludes with this one verse. But do you know the verse that comes right before that one? Verse 17, it says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in their guilt. One of the most loving things that we possibly can do is to not keep the truth from those who need it. So what do we do? When it came to cleaning my pool, it's really easy to look at all the little problems and try to fish them out. I mean, I got a net out and tried to scoop things out, but when you have a pump that continues to pump things in, it just seems like a fruitless endeavor. And trust me, as a church, and as we look around this world around us, I have my own fair share of opinions on how we ought to respond to certain things that we see going on around us in our culture, but I don't know if I'm right in every situation. But in a world where lies and deceit are continually pumped into the waters of our culture, I think we can sometimes fixate on temporary fixes when deep down what is needed is something far greater than what we can fix on our own. Last I checked, I still can't change the human heart. So we have to pray. We have to pray. We have to submit, humble ourselves before a God who is all power, all powerful, all knowing, who can do so much more than we're capable of. You know, Jesus entered into a world that was blind to who he was. In fact, right there in John chapter 1, it talks about this. He came into the world in verse 10 and 11. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, it had its finger, his fingerprints on everything around it. Even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And in perhaps one of his most famous servants, as, as he is going and, and seeking, how do I bring a kingdom into a world that doesn't recognize the things of God. And he, he, he goes three chapters in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he talks about a lot of things. I mean, he addresses a lot of moral issues. He addresses a lot of the cultural and social issues that are going on in his day. He, he mentions those things. He talks about the law, and he actually goes further than that. I mean, he talks about, you remember what it says, like, uh, you know, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone that looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. I mean, he goes further it's not just the external behavior that you see that matters. No, there's something going on deep down in your heart that needs to be changed. He talks about all those things. But do you know where he begins his sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they can't do it on their own. Who know that there is a standard that they fall far short of. Blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. Those who know that they can never get there on their own. Jesus knew that for things to change, it had to begin in the human heart. Do you know how we ended up fixing our pool? After talking about what we needed to do, dumping in different chemicals, trying to fish things out, I finally decided maybe we should check the filter. I thought that after having it for just a week, surely things were fine. But then I opened it up. And sure enough, I pulled out the filter and it was caked in just nasty, gross, green muck. So I took some time, grabbed the hose, I cleaned it off, put it back in. And really, within just a few hours, the whole pool began to become clean again. We cannot expect change in our life, in our family, in our country without a renovation of our hearts. And that starts with our own. And that is something that only God can do. Let us not mistake the obstacles that we face to be things that we can fix on our own. Let us be a church that comes to him, that prays and lays all these burdens before him because he is the one who can fix them.